back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This is the last week of season four, and we are wrapping up our conversation about romantic comedies. It was a little tricky figuring out what the last big conversation was going to be about. I considered lovers kept apart by random or strange or complicated situations like in Just Like Heaven, uh, starring Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo, for example. Reese is in a coma, but her ghost or spirit or something is haunting Mark, who has recently sublet her ridiculously cool San Francisco apartment. That's one thing about probably to me, one of the most unbelievable parts of romantic comedies is the apartments that these people live in. <laughs> like I cannot even begin to imagine what what it cost them a month. Or another example is Return to Me with David Duchovny and Minnie Driver. David's wife is killed in a car accident, and then he meets Minnie and falls in love with her. But it turns out she has his dead wife's heart. So something, you know, I kept thinking of this and thinking lovers kept apart by just random some things that almost like it's not a comedy, but you, I always go back to kind of thinking Romeo and Juliet. There's something in the way that is keeping them from being together as problematic as that relationship was to begin with. I then also thought about talking about love triangles and they are everywhere. Uh, this means war with Reese Witherspoon, Chris Pine and Tom Hardy, the most unlikely of triangles. So Chris and Tom are, I think they're FBI agents. There's some kind of special agents who fall for the same girl, of course, it's Reese, and then they kind of go to war to earn her affections using state equipment and technology and staff in order to woo each other and to keep each other from having good dates. I, seems a little wrong. Or um, another one, Something Borrowed with Jennifer Goodwin and Kate Hudson. Kate gets engaged to Jennifer's longtime crush and a friendship nearly implodes. So you've got Kate and Jennifer versus the boy that Jennifer was in love with in law school. There is so much that can be said about that movie that the only likable character is John Krasinski, the guy that should have been chosen, but another example of a love triangle. All that being said, <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> I landed on the trope of second chances. I kind of felt like it would be a good place to end. Um, all season, we've talked about ways in which romantic comedies are charming, but pretty problematic. Poor communication skills that often result in lying to the significant other being one of the main issues. It's those poor communication skills that often lead in the instance of the second chance to the initial breakup. The relationship breaks down and instead of confronting the issues, talking about them, dealing with them at all, the couple chooses to move on with their lives. This is not always a bad thing. And I think that that's what this trope shows that there are those times where I think it's, you, you do need to stick it out. You need to communicate, you need to figure it out. Um, in both of these cases, I think you had two couples, the movies we're going to talk about, you have couples that are young and are just not ready or not ready for that kind of relationship. Uh, that, but sometimes people, you know, they jump into relationships convinced that they found the right person when in fact the relationship is a stopgap for not dealing with their own issues. Once they've done that, once they've grown up and they've experienced life and they have found some wisdom, then they're actually ready for the relationship. And when they do meet that person again, then it ends up being really cute. At least that's my two cents on the whole situation. So consider that lens though, as we talk about today's two movies, 2002's Sweet Home Alabama, because I was apparently intent on talking about Reese Witherspoon today. She was in both of the examples I mentioned earlier and I landed on 
her anyway, and 1940s This Philadelphia Story, starring not only Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, but the one and only Jimmy Stewart. I love that Jimmy made it into the season twice because there's just there was there's never been anyone like him since. First up, Sweet Home Alabama. So Melanie's, who's played by Reese Witherspoon, her life seems to be a fairy tale. She's an up-and-coming fashion designer about to host her first show, and she's dating the incredibly handsome and charming NYC politician Andrew Hennings. But after Andrew proposes to Melanie in the middle of a Tiffany's where he tells her to pick one, which that would give me such anxiety... There, I have a list of things that friends of mine are not allowed to have happen um, if I do one day meet a gentleman that I would like to marry. He is not allowed to propose to me via um, the the big screens at a sporting event. <laughs> He's not allowed to do it like on Christmas morning in front of my entire family. There's just a list of things. And I think being dropped in the middle of Tiffany's and say, pick one, sounds wonderful and sounds romantic, but I would be so stressed out being like, well, what's that cost? Well, I don't, that's a lot of money. I can't handle that. No, that's too bad. Like having to make a choice in the moment like that would just, that would be hard for me. (laughs) I don't consider myself an overly anxious person, but that kind of, when it comes to money and spending money and that that much money, I'd be mm-mm, no, no. You know what? You pick and I'll be very happy with whatever you choose for me. I got off course again. Sorry. So Melanie realizes she's in quite the pickle, though. She has said yes to Andrew, uh, but she's actually still married to her childhood sweetheart, Jake, that she hasn't seen in years. But of course, because this is a romantic comedy, she does not give her fiance a heads up. He has no idea that she is still married. No, she just jumps on a plane to Alabama to take care of the situation, which to no one's surprise, just doesn't go smoothly. Her husband is, her husband, Jake, um, is less than amused at her high and mighty attitude, seeing as how she was the one that left. Uh, he They kind of argue for a while before he gets fed up and calls the sheriff to come and arrest her. The sheriff, who was an old friend of theirs, is like, no, this is just a domestic, you know, dispute. You're fine. Nothing's nothing's a problem. But then Jake brings up an outstanding warrant from her childhood concerning a tractor and a pond. And so she gets tossed into jail. Melanie then gets bailed out by her father, and we get a glimpse of that family dynamic when she's being taken home and you get to meet her mom. At first glance, it appears that Melanie was kind of a big fish in a small pond and now has a hard time connecting with her family after living in the big city for so long. So that is the impression we are given of Melanie kind of at the beginning of the movie. Then Melanie discovers uh, that she still shares a joint bank account with Jake, So she ends up taking all of his money as blackmail to get him to sign the divorce papers, ends up going to a bar later that night and offending all of her childhood friends that still live in town, and then just gets fall down drunk at a local, you know, at this pub, at this local watering hole. Jake has to take her home, drops her off at her house, and her dad's like, man, this is like deja vu all over again. Needless to say, her quick trip home isn't turning out quite like she expected. So over the next couple of days, Melanie starts to see that as much as she tried to leave her past behind, she's still that Southern girl that grew up in a small town. She has roots, a past, people that know her and genuinely love her. And she starts to struggle with the feeling she's buried in New York. She has a great conversation with Jake, kind of forgives him for what happened between them when they were young. 
it was just an impossible situation for both of them. He forgives her for leaving, knowing that she, uh, he has this great line, you know, to her that you can have roots and wings. He knew she needed to go and do something bigger and better. And he, he doesn't really fault her for that. He definitely wishes things had happened differently, but he understood why she had to leave. And she lets the town and all its quirky characters back into her life. So it's really kind of beautiful to watch that happen. Then Andrew, the fiancé, shows up in Alabama and throws her into a tailspin because she realizes that she still has feelings for Jake, who eventually signed the papers because he wants her to be happy. Andrew is hurt and angry. Of course he is. (laughs) Poor guy. Of course he is. To find out she's technically still married and confused as to why she would keep her family in that bringing such a secret. But he's... He's a pretty decent guy and he forgives her and even agrees to have the wedding in her hometown, which seems to me a little bit of a leap that she's home for less than a week. She fully comes to terms with all of her trauma and then's like, yeah, let's get married here. I mean, it's sweet. I like it, but it seems like some more work probably needs to be done there. So they are still set to get married. Day of the wedding finally comes. I'm skipping some parts here. Day of the wedding finally comes. Melanie is walking down the aisle. Jake is noticeably absent, licking his wounds off alone. Andrew's mother, the mayor of New York, is being her kind of haughty, wonderful self because she's played by Candace Bergen. And then Melanie's lawyer comes running in to let her know that while Jake signed the divorce papers, she didn't. Um, So she's technically still married to Jake. And that's where you get Candace Bergen really kind of stepping in and it's like, what what is the problem here? You know, she doesn't want Andrew to marry this woman anyway and now she's kind of embarrassing her which is horrible and embarrassing Andrew who she you know has dreams of getting into federal politics so there's just a whole a whole thing there and that's when Melanie finally tells Andrew that she gave her heart away a long time ago and never really got it back that she won't she can't marry him Um, and she ends up running off to find Jake who kisses her in the rain it's very sweet uh the end. <laughs> I have always loved this one. You definitely want to punch Melanie from time to time, but you also see her struggling with feelings she never really dealt with, that struggle to have roots and wings, which I just really like that, that you don't have to give up who you were to become who you want to be, to to love where you come from, even if you do want to be somewhere else. It wasn't that Jake and Melanie were wrong for each other. It's just that they had growing up to do. They both needed to make something of themselves, use their use their wings a bit. It was a second chance, a long time in the making with a very sweet ending. And we even get a bit of an epilogue showing their lives together. Melody still working on a career, Jake still working on his and the family they make together. There is a great part too where one of Melanie's um, friends, childhood friends, tells her that, well, Jake had come to New York City to find her, but when he he did find her um, and when he saw her so happy and doing such amazing things, he realized that before he could ask her to come home, he would have to make something of himself. And so that's what he had been doing all of that time, trying to make something of himself. And he started his own business that was doing well. And so I, I like the idea that both of them had growing up to do. It was really nobody's fault, just kids who got married too early. So that's Sweet Home Alabama. If you haven't watched it in a while, you should. It's so sweet. A few interesting tidbits about the movie. This was the first film to shoot in New York City after September 11th. That's kind of interesting. The glass featured as Deep South Glass. So Jake um, has started this company called Deep South Glass where he sells 
kind of glass sculptures. Uh, there's this whole plot line about lightning striking sand and creating glass. I don't know if that's real science. And I don't want to look it up because I like, I like the idea of it being true. Um, and Melanie just kind of stumbles upon this glass and then goes to the store and finally re realizes that it was Jake's. But the glass featured as Deep South Glass is actually hand-blown glass made by Simon Pierce, a Vermont company named after Simon Pierce who immigrated to the U.S. from Waterford, Ireland. In the movie, uh, Melanie visits a coondog cemetery. Uh, it, it's actually a real place in Tus Tuscumbia. Alabama, maybe that's how you say it. The northern Alabama town is the childhood home of Helen Keller, whose story was told in The Miracle Worker in 1962. So that's kind of fun. Uh, next one, Charlize Theron was originally cast as Melanie Carmichael. Due to the actor strike, she jumped to a ready-to-go movie called Trapped, which came out in 2002. Reese Witherspoon was cast the same weekend that her previous film, Legally Blonde, opened so she jumped right in when melanie announces her engagement earl and pearl that's her parents names earl and pearl earl asks pearl to pull the bologna cake out of the freezer and i have there have there was some terminology in this movie that i did at one point look up pearl sometimes says well i'm gonna go put on the dog i didn't know what that was um there was another term they said, and I can't remember, but I had, I looked up bologna cake, but this cake is a concoction of, this is horrible. I'm very sorry to share this with you. Bologna, cream cheese, and horseradish. And it was served to a script writer by his fiance, who was from Indiana. This is not an Indiana delicacy. I have never heard of a bologna cake. If you are a Hoosier and you have made and eaten a bologna cake, please contact me because I, I would love to talk to you about that and what other very interesting foods your family may have devoured um, as you were growing up. <laughs> so that was Sweet Home Alabama. Uh, next, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia story. Uh, this is one of my, I am a big fan of kind of noir Hollywood, black and white films, that early Hollywood this is one of my favorites, all-time favorites. The cast is absolutely amazing. So in this, we meet Tracy Lord, who is played by Katherine Hepburn, the oldest daughter of a wealthy socialite family in Philadelphia. She was married to C.K. Dexter Haven, and I am going to refer to his whole name the whole time. I'm just going to warn you because it's wonderful. C.K. Dexter Haven, who is played by the indomitable Cary Grant, and he was a yacht designer. But the marriage ended when she said he drank too much, and he said she drove him to drink. So they have have been divorced. It's been a couple years. Now Tracy is about to marry George Kittredge, a man she believes kind of better meets her high standards. But unfortunately for Tracy, Sidney Kidd of Spy Magazine, a publisher in New York, wants to cover the wedding and intends to send Macaulay Mike Connor, played to perfection by Jimmy Stewart, and Liz Embry, the beautiful Ruth Hussey, to cover the event. So he has sent journalists to go and cover the event. Kidd intends to use C.K. Dexter Haven to make the introduction since he's been working for Spy in South America. And the, the plan is to tell Tracy that Mike and Liz are friends of her brother Junius, who is a U.S. diplomat in Argentina. I would like to research a little more this name, Junius. I have never heard it before, and I love it. Tracy isn't easily swayed by this. She's immediately on to the fact that these are not friends of Junius's. Juni Junius's? That seems right. So C.K. Dexter Haven kind of spills the beans that Kid actually, the, the 
publisher, Syndicate, actually is set to release a risque article chronicling the infidelity of Tracy's father, who had an affair with a dancer. So Tracy agrees to the interview on wedding coverage to save her family's reputation. She does not, in fact, make it easy for the interviewers, which is part of the fun of the show. Meanwhile, C.K. Dexter Haven is welcomed back into the family, at least by Tracy's mother and sister. They always loved him, had wished that the marriage had survived. So days before the wedding now, Tracy finds herself in a pickle. She's got her fiancé, which we assume she loves. He seems like a decent fellow. Uh, Her ex-husband that she's not over. And she's kind of developed a friendship with Mike, with Jimmy Stewart, turns out not to be as grouchy as he seems and is is a fun conversationalist. He is a writer, of course, because he's a journalist, but he does a lot of short stories. She actually goes to the public library, what, to find a book of of short stories that he had written. And so they have a lot to talk about, a very ease about them as they're talking. So the evening before the wedding, Tracy goes and gets drunk with Mike and kisses him before taking a midnight swim. George, the fiancé, then sees Mike carrying the comatose Tracy into the house to put her to bed, and it just kind of assumes the worst. The next morning, he demands that Tracy explain herself before going through with the wedding. But she can't explain herself. Instead, she thinks of an argument she had had I think the day before with C.K. Dexter Haven, where he really kind of put her in her place about presenting herself as an angel, a goddess, the description of kindness. Um, And then because she had given off these airs, it was impossible. She had impossible expectations on others that no one was ever going to live up to this, the standard that she had set, even though her standard for herself was a lie too. She realizes that George bought into this image, this lie, and he ended up falling in love with the ideal and not really with her. So her eyes had been opened um, about her imperfections and things she needs to work on during that argument. She realizes that she can't marry George. She doesn't want to be worshipped the way he worships her. She wants to be loved. So she stops the wedding but is troubled that all of the guests have arrived. Like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Well, Mike, Jimmy Stewart, volunteers to marry her. He just steps in like, I've known you for two days, marry me. But she kindly says no, knowing that Liz, his camera woman and the other journalist that comes, uh, is in love with him. So she's like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. So then Dexter steps up to the plate. It was his plan all along. And Tracy enthusiastically agrees to reunite with him. And they live happily ever after. Why do I think they live happily ever after? Because Tracy has found a man who loves her despite her faults and is willing to tell her the truth. And C.K. Dexter Haven has found a woman that challenges him and encourages him to be the best version of himself. Another example of a couple of people needing to grow up, maybe not in years, but in wisdom and life experience. Sometimes you have to lose something to realize what you lost. And so I think I, I, I choose to believe that it works out for them the second time around. The film was shot in just eight weeks and required no retakes. During the scene where Jimmy Stewart hiccups when he's drunk, you can see Cary Grant looking down and grinning. Since the hiccup wasn't scripted, Grant was on the verge of breaking out laughing, and he had to compose himself quickly. Stewart apparently spontaneously thought of hiccuping in the drunk scene without telling Grant. When he began hiccuping, Grant turned to Stewart saying, Excuse me, the scene required only one take. That's, you know, that's talent, you know, and a good eye of the director, I guess, to know that, hey, no, we've got this. We don't need to do this a hundred times. 
Jimmy Stewart never felt he deserved the Best Actor Oscar for his performance in this film. It was his only Academy Award for Best Actor, especially since he had initially felt miscast. He always maintained that Henry Fonda should have been in, should have won instead for The Grapes of Wrath, and that the award was probably deferred payment for my, his work on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is another great movie. Makes me cry every time, though. Cary Grant demanded top billing and $137,000 in salary, a huge amount at the time. As it turned out, however, he donated his entire earnings to the British War, Re British War Relief Fund. That was nice. Catherine Hepburn starred in the Broadway production of the play on which the film was based and owned the film rights to the material. They were purchased for her by billionaire Howard Hughes, then given to her as a gift. Awesome. So that is, you know, a little bit on the topic of second chances and our last big conversation about romantic comedies. I pulled Watson back into the pod. She was on there for the villains episode, I believe in the Disney um, season, season one. And she hopped on for something else for me too, but I can't remember right now. Uh, oh, the Christmas episode, uh, Christmas appreciation week. She hopped in for one of those. Um, but we are going to talk a couple of superlatives and a fun conversation about our current obsession that we have. So I hope you will turn tune in for that. But that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you would rate and review so that other listeners who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about can, can join the fun as well, can join the conversation. Or if you'd like to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today. I will see you next time.